If you're a veteran or military spouse of an early stage startup or small business and feel like you're making it up as you go, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to The Transition, where we demystify the entrepreneur experience for veterans and military spouses who've already made or looking to make the transition from the military into entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, the voice of the bunker. I'm a Marine Corps veteran, social entrepreneur, and member of the Bunker Labs branding team. Today on The Transition, I have an amazing guest for everyone, Asia Arangio, founder and CEO of Demand Maven, a growth consultancy that helps founders of early stage startups either get their first 100 customers or help them get to the next stage of growth, but lean. Asia is a master at building and implementing effective go-to-market strategies. I first came across her on Rob Walling's podcast, Startups for the Rest of Us, and have been a fan ever since. Asia has worked with hundreds of B2B SaaS companies and travels around the country speaking at conferences and advising founders on how to acquire their first 100 customers. On the show, Asia breaks down how to craft an effective go-to-market strategy and what to expect at every stage of growth, from the first 10 until your first 100 customers. This episode, combined with my previous one on how to acquire your first 100 customers, are a powerful combination for all entrepreneurs in the bunker, so make sure you listen to them both. Before you hear from Asia and I, make sure you subscribe to the Transition Newsletter at the link in the show notes. I send out a newsletter sharing the latest episode every week. And if there's a topic you'd like me to cover on the show or in the newsletter, shoot me an email at mike.stedman at bunkerlabs.org. I also want to let everyone know that pre-orders are available for my first book, Black Veteran Entrepreneur. Validate your business model, build your brand, and step into your greatness. As listeners of the show, I'd be honored to have you support my pre-order campaign at the link in the show notes. I'll be accepting pre-orders for the next 24 days, so don't wait. The book is expected to ship October of this year, so be on the lookout. This episode of The Transition is brought to you by MetLife Foundation and their commitment to supporting veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs. In addition, the foundation also provides mentorship and financial health resources to veterans and military spouses transitioning into the workforce. As always, I hope you enjoyed today's show and that accelerates you on your own entrepreneurial journey. Asia, welcome to The Bunker. I'm fired up to have you here. You know, um, as somebody who hosts a podcast and runs a podcast company, people always assume that I listen to like the Joe Rogans of the world and all these different people. But more often than not, when they're like, oh, Mike, who do you listen to? I'm like, I listen to this marketer down in Atlanta. She runs a company called Demand Maven. And uh, she's really just put out a lot of great content on uh, on your podcast and then the stuff with MicroComp. And when I saw your your uh, talk at MicroComp from like way back, I think it was like a YouTube legacy video on how to basically get your first 100 customers. I was like, Asia's got to be someone I get on the podcast. So I really appreciate you following me up on Twitter. I was tweeting her, y'all. And uh, she she was willing to come on the platform. So we're honored to have you here. Thank you so much. Yeah, super pumped to be here and super excited to dig into all the fun things we're going to talk about today. So what I would love to do is first, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself uh, to the bunker, like I told you before we hit record, we got veterans and military spouses from all over the country, all over the world. And uh, they're tuning in uh, because a lot of times, too, you know, as we start to transition from the military and start to pursue, pursue these entrepreneurial dreams, you know, this podcast has been like a blessing to a lot of people's ears. Um, and so, you know, they're they're anxious to hear from you. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Asia Arangio. I'm the CEO and founder of Demand Maven. At Demand Maven, we work with both early stage and growth stage SaaS companies and startups on reaching their very first growth milestones, but then also troubleshooting growth, especially when you are beyond the early stage and you're now in traction stage. How do you find other places and areas to improve growth? Uh, so we, we work with both. I would say uh, very early days of Demand Maven. Uh, I've been running Demand Maven now for about four years, but very early days, we really focused almost exclusively on early stage companies. So these were um, some, some, everyone has a different definition of early stage, but I think for the sake of of this conversation, I would say less than 500 customers, potentially even less than 100 customers. And over the last couple of years, we've expanded, still, of course, working with our early stage and bootstrapped folks, uh, but we've expanded into working with traction and growth stage companies as well. Uh, but that is a little bit of what we do. Uh, my background is marketing and growth for SaaS technology, software. 
Uh, before Demami and I was at two VC funded, very high growth startups here in Atlanta. And then before that, I was uh, essentially like a head of marketing or director of marketing for a technology consulting firm for about like five years or so. So been in the space for, I guess, 10 years. Uh, I think I, I think it's been 10 years now. <laughs> so have seen a lot, done a lot. And yeah, I'm, I'm excited to share what I know. What gave you the confidence to step out on your own and start Demand Maven? <laughs> I don't know if I would call it confidence. Um, I think it was it was much more opportunity and excitement. So I I went from again like two VC funded, very high growth, high pressure environments to realizing that there was a lot of opportunity in the market for my skill set, my expertise, but at a grander scale because. Uh, while VC-funded experience was really cool and very interesting and I learned a lot, there's far more bootstrappers out there than than there are funded companies. Funded companies, actually, I mean, everyone probably knows this, but it's a very small segment of just the entrepreneurial landscape when it comes to SaaS software. Um, and I, I just, I fell in love with the bootstrapper community in general. Still love working with my VC-funded companies as well, but uh, bootstrapping was something that was really relatively new to me. And it seemed like they they still needed help. Uh, they might not have been able to hire full-time quite yet, but I thought, what if I could offer what I've learned to this audience? And the answer was, heck yes, and please more. <laughs> uh, and it just it just took off from there. I mean, I, I think when I first started Demand Maven, it was very much a going to stay small, it's just going to be me. Uh, and then over over the years, it it grew and grew and grew until it was just like, oh, I would, I mean, yeah, like uh, it's time to take on like a team, like it's time to to maybe build this a little bit more than than what I originally thought it would be. Um, but it was, I mean, yeah, it was incredible. It, it's been a lot of fun. Excited to grow even more and continue learning and growing together. Well, once we get to enter the interview, I'm going to ask you what your BHAG is for Demand Maven. And I'm curious to know the vision um, because like you said, you know, we start, some of us start these companies, we're like, oh, we're going to keep it small. But now that you're seeing the potential, you email me back on Superhuman, Superhuman. I was like, yo, you're really out there in the tech space because, uh, you know, that's just kind of like that next level on the uh, the email side of house. So I, I know you're embedded, but it is cool <laughs> for me to see you moving around the bootstrapper space. Um, and you've just produced such great content with Rob Wall and then the micro comp. Like I was looking at the conference. I was like, oh, man, I need to go out to one of these growth conferences. And we had Rob on the podcast as well. So uh, sounds like you've built a great network for yourself uh, around Demand Maven. Thank you. I, I, I try it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I just, in this world, you just, it's so easy to get so connected to other people and to just find other, other folks who think like you and then also don't think like you. And I, and I think that's kind of what I've been surrounding myself with. They're just people who challenge me, but then also people who need help, need advice. Love it. So one of the things we do on this podcast, you got to take off your armor, Asia. You know, everybody okay. loves to show that they're killing it on social media. Look at me. Woo, woo, woo. But for those of us in the fight, in the hustle, we know what it's really like. And so mm -hmm. one of the traditions we do on the show is we ask every guest to take off their armor and share something that they're struggling with, either personally or professionally, as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's easy, like I can go first, y'all. This stuff is hard. I'm going to tell you, you know, some days I feel like I'm killing the age. I'm like, you know, got my little admin, you know, got my full pipeline. I'm doing meetings. And then other days I just be like, when is this thing going to end? Like, what are we working <laughs> towards? You know, um, because yeah. at times it can feel like you're just on this never ending, I don't know, treadmill, you know, and it's like constant ebbs and flows. And I'm all about trying to set intention in my life and everything. But part of it is also understanding that, like, we only have one life to live and this is our journey. And so, you know, at times where it's like you're in the grind, you're feeling it, you're loving it. But other times it's like, man, am I missing out? Like, how much longer can I do this? So that's just something I, I want to share with everyone. Yeah, of course. Oh my gosh. I can think of three things, but I'll I'll start with one and, and if we have time for more, happy to share. Um, okay, so the first thing that came to mind was uh, striking the balance between building demand and marketing versus delivery. So we're a services business, and this is this isn't gonna be applicable necessarily to all SaaS companies or startups, but in the services world, there is a uh, there is a goal to get to a place where you are very consistently balanced, where uh, you you do enough marketing uh, activity to generate the demand that you need 
to fill your pipeline for the next quarter, year, whatever it is. And this is this is very different than a SaaS company. A SaaS company really has to like be marketing all the time. Like there's not really ever a stop. Like there's not like, oh, we're going to take a break for like six months and, you know, see what happens. Uh, and services companies, you do have that luxury in some ways of being able to like, okay, like we're going to, like we can't, like we only have so many people on the team um, who can deliver against projects anyway. So like we'll slow down at different periods of time, um, which is why for us, you'll you'll see me go hard on marketing because we're building up pipeline. And then you'll see me kind of um, like go quiet a little bit. In a perfect world, I mean, obviously like we're always marketing and we're we're turning away pipeline. Uh, if anything, I think in, a, in the SaaS and software world, you don't have to worry about that as much because your software is what delivers value. But in the services world, you, you I mean, you the only way to take on more clients is to hire more people, right? So what I struggle with is finding the balance between, okay, like we're going to go hard on marketing, but I have to have enough bandwidth in order to do that. Because if I'm stuck uh, delivering 100% against client work, then I'm working in the business and not on the business. So what ends up happening is I have to get, I have to make sure I have the right people in place to deliver against the projects that require, um, like they'll they'll be able to take it to like the 90%. I maybe give my extra little 10% and then um, most of my time is now focused on marketing. That's actually really, really, really challenging to do because that means that you've got super talented people, which we do. We have incredible people that work on the demand maven side. Um, but if their bandwidth changes or if anything, like if emergencies happen, like there's all kinds of things that can lift and shift on the team side. Like there's just all kinds of things that, you know, happen. We've got, we're still in a pandemic. I mean, there's different implications that kind of uh, like stretch out the time that um, that that we have, and so what ends up happening is if if we're not careful, we end up delivering so hardcore on client projects that we forget to do the demand building side, and that's kind of some that's like a, a balance we're still figuring out. Uh, but I will say we're actually at a place now where you're you're probably going to see me go hard on marketing <laughs> over the next few months because we are uh, we've hired a few extra folks. They have been. Um, you know, trained on our process. And now I'm I'm more free to actually focus back on marketing again. So it's kind of like a an ongoing process. But for SaaS and software, I mean, ideally, you would never see that, right? Like you would just have consistent marketing because nothing is really operationally preventing you from doing that as long as you've got the right folks. Um, but yeah, it's a different challenge for services business. Yeah. And that's just a small business thing in general where it's yeah. like this really ebb and flow. And, you know, I talked to business owners, been in business like 15 years, and they say they're still figuring out their marketing. And part of me wonders, is that just what it is? It's kind of like, you know, we always got to constantly catch a fish, you know, and this is where I think brand kind of comes in, right? It's like, where are you, what are you known for? You know, when people are, are, you know, we always try to measure everything, but there's also like the stuff you said of being out there, you know, having a brand presence. But uh, it is definitely a challenge for agency owners. I use podcasts. I release my podcast episodes. That's like my marketing for the week. I'm like, if I don't do anything else, I release a podcast from Ironbound. But uh, it is a challenge. You're 100% correct. Totally. Totally. Pacing. Yeah. Pacing is really tough in a services business. And um, I, I mean, I think for us, like we have it down to a science where we know that if if we focus on marketing for at least two to three months, that builds up our pipeline for the next six so it's one of those things where it's like, like we know, like when we kind of put the brakes on and we really focus on marketing that it generates results. But it's one of those things where it's like you've got to have the right people free to do that because if you don't, then 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 you're you get behind the goal a little bit, and that's kind of what is super awkward sometimes. But it's a like I said, it's a ongoing um, balancing act, especially as as we grow. Um, and take on different projects too. That's another thing that impacts us as well. But but yeah, totally agree. So before we talk about pipeline, because you've mentioned it a couple of times, I want to acknowledge what brought us here today, and that's Bunker Labs, a national network of veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs dedicated to helping the military connected community start and grow their own business. Make sure you head over to bunkerlabs.org if you haven't done so already, or just click the link in the show notes. And one of the things you and I were talking about, Age, is just how important it is to have community especially when you're an early stage founder, you know, conferences you can go to to meet up with people, you know, even if it's just a local meetup. Um, I know uh, you probably haven't inter interacted with Bunker Labs per se, but talk to us about some communities you've spent time with out in Atlanta. 
Oh gosh. You know, I, I would say in my, in my earlier days in my career, Atlanta wise, very much involved in the local startup and tech uh, programs and communities here. Um, I used to advise for Atlanta tech village. Um, and oh gosh, I'm going to completely blank on the names of all of them now, but honestly, most of my community and network are outside of the state. They're all over the world. They're in the UK. They're in different parts of the US, Canada. I mean, they're all over the place. And conferences are um, both virtual and now coming back in person. But conferences are a great place to just connect with other people. Um, And there's various like online communities. So I actually consider MicroConf to be one of those communities. Um, But yeah. Yeah, I'm part of Mega Maker. So I'm in there with Justin Jackson and uh, these indie entrepreneurs. And I just found out about the indie entrepreneur community probably like a year ago. You know, I've come across some of these people, like you said, Rob Walling. But until I read his book, I was like all in because I felt like it spoke spoke to me in the community that I primarily serve, which are a lot of bootstrap founders. Um, And so it's just important to be able to have access to those things. And, you know, like I said, I want to check out one of these uh, these growth conferences for MicroComp. Now. What we're talking about is building a pipeline, especially in the early days when you don't have a a large marketing budget. To be honest, you're still trying to figure out, you know, what it is you actually do and who your perfect customer is. And there's like all this information out there about what people should do. They should write a Mm -hmm. blog. They should start a podcast. They should do all this other stuff. One of the nice things about you is you have pattern recognition. So you've worked with so many bootstrap founders right? You've gone to conferences, you've seen what works and what doesn't work. And you really kind of position yourself around educating founders around how to get their first hundred customers. So what I would love to learn from you today is talk to us about how do we build that initial pipeline for our business? Absolutely. Okay. So when it comes to the first 100 customers, uh, what, what most, what most people don't realize or know is that with the first hundred customers, there's actually like three, two to three phases within the first hundred. There's your first 10, your first 50, and then your first 100. So we're going to start with the first 10. And this is kind of where it is going to depend on if you have a product ready to go, like if you have your MVP or not. If you do not have your MVP, if it's in, if it's in progress, if it's in the works, and you're hoping to get customers very quickly or very soon, then it's uh, you have a slightly different process than if you've got the MVP and no one's using it, no customers, like no one's touched it or seen it. Um, so already we're we're just going to focus on the first ten customers because that's one. Like if you can get over the first ten and you can get over the next fifty, then you're you're probably in a pretty good spot. Um, but first ten customers uh, again, if you've got your MVP. That is actually a very manual, non-scalable process. And it honestly shouldn't be a super scalable process because it's your first 10. It's a very small number of people, um, relatively speaking. You might have to talk to 100 before you get your first 10. But the ultimate goal of getting your first 10 is to really identify who is going to be the best paying customer who's hiring my product to solve some pain that they have. If we're not painkillers, then we're vitamins, which isn't necessarily the end of the world. But um, you want to do your absolute best to be a, can- a painkiller for someone. So you want your product to be a painkiller for someone who's going to who's willing to pay. How you get those first ten people? Okay, so honestly, these are uh, the tactics here are not um, like super mind blowing tactics. It's as simple as outreach on various channels. Of course, these channels have to be where your ideal target market is going to be in the first place. So don't go looking for grandma on Twitter, for example. You're probably going to have to call grandma. Um, Don't go looking for an engineer or a developer on Instagram, like that kind of thing. Uh, Because chances are your market might not necessarily be there. But if you go to Reddit, probably going to find a lot of engineers and developers. Um, You go to LinkedIn, you're going to find tons of professionals. You go to Twitter, you're going to find all kinds of people. Um, but you start really with outreach on the channel that they prefer and the channel that you're most likely to find them in. A lot of founders will, will start with uh, cold outreach. Some of them will use tools like social listening to identify when someone has a problem that their product might be able to solve. Uh, I cannot tell you how many times I get DMs because I've typed in the keywords like in a tweet and someone was like, oh, actually, we have a solution for that. Like, 
that kind of thing actually does work at a certain um, at a certain audience size, but it's very manual. The other side to this is just shaking the network tree. So, who do you know who knows your target audience? Who do you know who is connected to your market? Uh, so there's a little bit of networking here, of course, and then there's also just community based uh, sourcing. A lot of uh, early stage, like very early stage, they've got their MVP. A lot of the companies in the Atlanta Tech Village, for example, use the ATV community to find their very first customers. There's a natural built-in community of people there who could potentially be your target market. So I would also be asking, what are some communities that you're already a part of that might actually have your target audience? And the, the process is very manual. Like we're not talking writing articles. We're not talking building out this whole content marketing or demand generation engine. We're probably not running ads. Uh, I, I do think that Ads at this point is probably too way too early. Uh, you you really want to have a personalized touch point with these this first ten. There's a couple of reasons why. The first reason is because you need to have someone tell you to your face no uh, and why no. And also at the same exact time, you want people to tell you to your face, yeah, I would love to talk to you about this product, and here's why. Um, that's really hard to do if you're trying to do like all this content marketing and all of this. Like if you're trying to do like paid acquisition or anything like that, you don't really have any context. Um, so that's that's why that can be a more challenging funnel to build. So content marketing is putting the cart before the horse, you know, and it sounds right. like what you're talking about is good old fashioned sales, you know, a little elbow <laughs> grease, get out there, go start talking to people. And a lot of the old timers, right, that's what they did. They just drive around, go talk to people. But, you know, our generation, we like to get on social media. They're like, I need to do a TikTok channel. I need to do this. I need to do all that. And it's like, you don't even have 10 customers yet. So the first thing that you got to do is you got to find where they're at. You got to make sure that you've identified a pain point that they're willing to spend money on um, and then get out there and close them. Now, when you're trying to force your founders to do this, because I know you deal with a lot of tech people, they're probably very product focused, the product, the product, the product. How do you get them to get out there and be like, man, you need to get out there and start talking to people like you can't hide <laughs> like this thing is not going to sell itself. I mean, apart from just like sheer force, <laughs> uh, it has, I mean, this has to be a core value that you instill and ingrain in yourself from day one. I, I honestly, like when I think about the founders and teams that I work with, if that is not a core value, it, it like, there's no way that I can force that to become a core value. Right. Um, but I will say most most founders or product owners that are in that position, honestly, they learn they sometimes they just have to learn the hard way. They have to spend three to five years grinding on a product and then launch it and then realize no one wants it wants it. And then they have the aha moment of, oh crap, I did absolutely no just customer discovery. I did no market research. I did no market planning. I did no marketing planning. I had no strategy. Um, some some people just kind of have to learn the hard way. But I will say if you are, one, listening to this podcast, you already have a leg up on this. But two, it, it, that really has to be, it has to be a core value that you uh, learn and instill within yourself in the very early days. Because if it, if it doesn't, it's so possible to build in the dark and to build a whole entire product and product experience in a silo and not, and wait until you go to market, I'm putting that in finger quotes, um, wait until you go to market to find out that no one wants like nobody wants your your wheat, basically, <laughs> which is a uh, I say that to um, that's actually like a family phrase that we say nobody wants your wheat. It's a long story about why. But there's just like this game uh, and it's kind of it's called pit. It's kind of like this like stock market game. You're like trading a bunch of materials. Nobody ever wants wheat like you're trading like oils, salt, all this other stuff. Nobody ever wants wheat because it's the most expensive thing. And there's a lot of reasons why, but you don't ever want to get to that place when you go to market and nobody wants your wheat. Like that's the worst. Um, sell something different yeah. <laughs> and also learn early, like learn very early and soon if you're on the right track. And the only way to do that is to talk to talk to your target market, talk to potential customers, talk to prospects. And yes, uh, it doesn't sound sexy at all, but it really is pounding the pavement in the very first first 10 customers. It gets way easier and far more scalable later but you have to go through that very first phase. How long can it take people to get their first 10? This answer scares a lot of people. So I'm going to, I'm going to say what the average is. Um, but I, I want to say the average with the caveat and the disclaimer that um, results may vary. 
And also, it's not to discourage you. I think that's the other thing. On average, it can take anywhere from three months to two years. Uh, most companies, it takes them about a year to get their first 10. Now, your mileage may vary. Your results may vary. Your mileage may vary in a number of ways. It depends on your market. It depends on how painful the pain is that the customer or prospect has. And it also depends a lot on, again, being that vitamin versus being a painkiller. A lot harder and longer to sell vitamins than, of course, painkillers. And depending on the pain that you're solving, if it's a big, big pain, you're going to get customers a lot faster. If it's a small kind of meh pain, I can live without it. Like, I've got a little bit of a limp, but I'm not, you know, like it's not keeping me up at night. Like, it's going to it's gonna be harder, maybe a little bit slower for you than, um, than someone else who's solving a very large pain. And then the, the last thing, too, is your market. So if you are sell, if you're trying to sell to people who are relatively unaware of the pain, it, it's going to be a much longer journey for you. Um, but there's, of course, other market implications, like if you have competitors or uh, if you're selling something totally innovative and very, very new, like no one's ever seen it, all kinds of different things there. But again, mileage may vary, but it's not to discourage anyone just to set more realistic expectations. I appreciate you sharing that. And that's real, right? Like you said, three to two years. And one of the reasons we do this podcast is trying to demystify the entrepreneurial journey because people get discouraged when they see people on the cover of Forbes and they're like, oh, I just came up with this idea. They just raised millions of dollars. But, you know, like Rob Wall and Startups for the rest of us, it just looks a little different. And the other thing I'm curious for you, having worked with venture backed startups from the moment they declare MVP that they're out there. Now they're getting judged on their metrics, right? Like how how long it's taking them to get to this phase and this month, this this amount of recurring revenue per month, et cetera. The bootstrap founder is a little bit different. And so at what point in the journey do the entrepreneurs need to realize which direction they're going? And is it too late? Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say it is, it's uh, speaking of Rob, he actually might disagree with this, but I would say it's it's likely never too late to raise funds. The only thing that would make it too late would be if there's other market leaders very quickly filling up the gap. But even then, if you have a if you have a relatively non-competitive market, even then there's you'll it's still possible, of course, to always find investors. Uh, but I think on on the bootstrap side, the toughest part I think on the bootstrap side is deciding if if and when you want to raise. Um, there are, I think this is going to depend on your financial situation and also your own personal goals of like, what kind of journey do you want? The VC funded journey. I mean, you've heard it before. It's the five to 10 X year over year. And I, I don't know how to impart on what that experience is like. Cause like, honestly, there is nothing like it. It is literally like being in a rocket ship and you are going faster than any commercial airliner ever. Um, with bootstrapping, I kind of feel like it is more of like the, maybe it's, you know, a small plane at first, but eventually you kind of grow into the commercial airliner and like you're, you're relatively smooth sailing, but that can take you again. I don't want to scare anybody, but that could take you anywhere from three to 10 years to get, to get to there. Uh, I, a lot of our clients are bootstrapped and there are some that have, have literally been around for 10 years and like two full-time people, uh, very, very small. And then there are some that have been around for five, have 20, and are are considering getting VC funding now and want to get to that breakneck phase. So I would say there's probably, it's likely never too late, of course, unless there's some market implications that would make that less of less appealing of an opportunity. But with bootstrapping, I I think with with the right information and insight of the market, uh, you can. I mean, you can never predict a market, but you can at least plan for the next one to two years, you know, all things considered. Um, what I typically recommend for anyone wanting or looking to bootstrap or continuing to bootstrap is plan for the first two to three years. Like if you're thinking of your MVP, you're thinking of going to market, a lot of bootstrappers think six months ahead. I would encourage you guys to think two to three years ahead because that's just going to set you up so much better for not just short-term success, but long-term success as well. And you can weather a lot, you can weather storms a lot better, and you can also weather surprises, uh, such as pivoting or um, realizing maybe your product market fit is not as strong as you thought. You can, if you have the, the two to three years 
plan, you can weather that storm way easier if you only had like a six month plan, for example. Yeah, it's a different journey. Like you said, MailChimp, you know, had been hooking and jabbing for like 20 years, you know, um, until they finally kind of IPO'd and, you know, been doing great stuff. But they started as like an agency, you know, very similar to us. And then they built the product. So just recognize the journey you're going on. And again, going back to that, you know, it could take three to two years. Just remember that. So don't be discouraged, you know, while you're out there. So we get our first 10 customers. All right. We're patting ourselves on the back. Now the next step is we got to go to 50, right? So <laughs> yep. am I still scrapping? Am I still DMing people, et cetera? Or is this the point where you recommend, hey, we got to start implementing some kind of core marketing function, you know, to start building more brand awareness? Excellent question. Okay, so in uh, I am a strategist at my core. So in typical stra- you know, strategy fashion, I'm going to say it depends, <laughs> but... Usually going from 10 to any multiplier, whether that's 5x, 10x, whatever it is. So 10 to 50, we're looking at 5x. So going from 10 to 50 is, it's it probably is still a little bit, I would say it's like 20% still like pounding the pavement a little bit. But the 80% should really be out of my 10, who are the absolute best amazing customers and how do I repeat those people? And the way that you repeat those people is by talking to them. And it might sound like, well, what? I'm, I'm going to talk to them. But the answer is yes, you're going to talk to them. Uh, here's the thing. I, I can't really tell you do this channel because one, one channel that works for one founder and one product and one market doth not a super scalable channel will make for someone else. Um, so what I will say is going from 10 to 50 you and and looking at who is absolutely amazing that you want to repeat, you're going to have a couple of conversations with them. The first conversation is just going to be, well, how how did we find and source you in the first place? And the second is going to be, um, where do you hang out? What are all the different places online and offline that you hang out that we can find you? How can we find more of you? And depending on your customer, depending on your market, and depending even on the product implications that you have, you're going to hear a lot of different things. Uh, if you're, this is very generalized, like super generalized, but I, I mentioned targeting like engineers earlier. Like let's say you're targeting DevOps engineers or DevOps managers and software companies in the United States. Uh, they are going to have very specific channels that they hang out in. They're probably on Stack Exchange all the time. They're probably on Reddit, sometimes Twitter. They probably live in different Slack communities. These are the kinds of channels that you are going to start taking note of. And then the other thing that you're going to start taking note of are the more like offline things. Like, do they attend conferences? Do they um, attend specific events? Are there specific things that they participate in that we can potentially leverage? And this is going to help you figure out what marketing channels to leverage. Uh, Now, keep in mind uh, that your customer base, the channels that you use, it's going to be specific to your customer base. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and tell you to run Facebook ads. I'm not going to sit here and tell you to do Twitter or go- even Google ads, even though it's a, it's a great channel to start with. There's certainly basics here. Uh, there's certainly best practices, but there is no one size fits all. Um, so the important step is to really figure out next. And again, this is just purely based on talking to your customers. Like where where do my people hang out? What are the watering holes? Where can I find them? And then you're going to start uh, thinking about your very first campaigns, thinking about your very first uh, building out your marketing funnel, and you're going to start planning for that and taking it from there. So a recurring theme I keep hearing is talking to people. So you haven't said anything about like, oh, SEO optimization and all this other stuff. You're like, no, go talk to your existing customers. Look at where they're spending their time. Look who they're hanging out with. So you've seen this. How do you Again, how do you convey this to people when they still think that they need to be like, oh, I need SEO. I need to do this. I need to do that. And it's like, no, just go talk to people. You've got paying customers already. Go talk to the existing ones and figure out, you know, why they're coming to you. You're still not at that level yet to where you can, uh, uh, I don't know, take the gas off, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so tough, too, because tactics are so addicting. Like the second that you hear a tactic, like. I got my first 2,000 customers because I scraped this database and I did this and I sent out, you know, a bunch of emails and it just worked. And you start thinking, ooh, I should try that because that was, like, I could go do that, you know? 
And tactics are so addicting. There's so many of them. And it's really tough when um, you don't have that strategy to start with. So it's it's easy for me to impart this knowledge uh, or say this, but honestly, it's just because I've seen it so much. The so the typical pattern is, and this is this is the typical pattern. It's the I don't even want to say it's the what not to do, um, because I don't want to, I guess, uh, devalue the journeys of, of many founders. But the typical pattern is launch your MVP. Uh, do a bunch of marketing stuff. Everything from like, we're going to write a bunch of articles, we're going to launch ads, we're going to um, launch on Hacker News and uh, Product Hunt and like all these places. We're going to tell the whole world. And don't get me wrong, like a lot of those activities are great. But what ends up happening is they grind so hard. They'll do like six months of this, a year of this. And what they realize is like they might have gotten some initial results, but it, it invariably happens where things slow down, nothing actually works, uh, no one's converting or no one's becoming a paying customer. Um, a lot of times we'll see they have tons of traffic, but no one's signing up. Sometimes we see the opposite. They're doing all the stuff, but it's not generating anything. Like not a single soul is coming through and like actually considering the product. And it's a very common cycle. So then what happens is they start thinking, oh, marketing doesn't work or oh, marketing sucks. But really we have to stop and think, okay, what was our strategy? What did we want to accomplish and what was our plan? And did we execute in the best way that we possibly could have to achieve our goal? Nine times out of 10, we come back to the drawing board and we say, oh man, actually no, we, our audience didn't even care about that channel or you couldn't have found them anyway because they don't use Twitter or like, you know, whatever it is. And it's a very common um, journey, but that's why I recommend from day one like you don't even have you can save yourself a lot of money, time, heartache by skipping all of that and saying, actually, let's just talk to the customer because that's the shortcut. Honestly, it's the cheat code. It's a shortcut. They have all the answers, at least when it comes to to um, channel strategy. Let's just talk to him. Let's ask him because they probably have answers that we couldn't have dreamed of, you know. And they also can help you refine your product. You get that market based feedback. You know, maybe they make recommendations on your behalf but you're still out there, you know, engaging people. And the other thing too, which is during this phase, I'm assuming, right? We're still talking to people, but that doesn't mean they're going to be our clients right away. So right. as we're talking, you've got to start building a process out to nourish that client or prospect, right? So that way when they are ready to buy, right, you're good. Or during this phase, are we still targeting people that have the pain point hard already? Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, absolutely. And I, I think too, like the, 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 real, the real aha moment for customers is when they realize that your solution to their problem is better in every way and it's actually less friction for them to use. Uh, when they have that aha moment and all the stars align around price, around model, and around what the pain is and how, how your product specifically solves it, that's when the light switch switches on. And if if we're not if we're not doing the best job of making that obvious, making it real crystal clear for customers to make that decision and to um, remove as much friction as possible into that decision making process, they're never going to become customers. They're just going to be like, yeah, it seems cool, but I don't really get it. Um, and you know, positioning is included in that, of course. Uh, that's a lot of stuff to throw at you, but that yes, I completely agree. So we got our 50 customers. We feel like we're rocking and rolling. We've hired some contractors. All right, now we got to get to the next 100. All right, mm -hmm. is this the point where I hire you? Do people hire you early on? You know, what is this process like to get to the next level? <laughs> um, I love this question. So really, people hire us at really any stage. Uh, if even, even in the zero customer stage where they have plenty of prospects that they could put us in front of, but they don't necessarily know how to put that into a cohesive go-to-market strategy. And we also talk with customers or clients that have thousands of customers, like literally 3,000 customers. And they're like, okay, I want to get to 10. How do I get to 10? Um, so honestly, any stage. But I think from, from 50 to 100, this is when we start seeing much more scalable processes and operations put into place. So this is actually more of a growth story at this point where we're we're still focused, of course, on executing against marketing. And I'm putting that in finger quotes because when I say marketing, I really mean uh, acquisition uh, and activation. 
a little bit at least. So you've got your marketing website, you're likely putting out different types of content. Landing pages are included in that, that is technically content. Um, you're probably using some channels that of course get you uh, the, the customers that you're looking for and the leads that you're looking for, trials, demos, whatever your model is. By the time that we're looking at 50 to 100, you're really looking at doubling, but hopefully this is in a shorter amount of time. So however long it took you to get to 50, getting to 100 should actually be literally half the time, like same like uh, same volume, but half the time. That's what our goal is. Uh, but of course, you're, like I said, your mileage may vary. What we're really seeing here at this point is not only are we leveraging our channels, uh, we're putting out the right messages, but we're also looking at other areas and aspects of growth. So are we activating and onboarding as efficiently and effectively as possible? Uh, meaning like our onboarding emails are really good. Our in-app experience is really good. Our, um, like we really understand the context upon which our customers buy and we're able to meet them, like we're able to meet them where they're at every single time. That's when we start to see much more effective and efficient growth. Uh, so 50 to 100, I would say, is really a test in efficiency. Uh, if you have more of a sales process, so you're not like self-serve SaaS or anything like that, you have more sales where you've got like a demo model, like that kind of thing, um, you're very effectively closing clients at, or customers at a, a pretty healthy rate, 30 to 40% is typically what we see. And then on top of that, they are onboarding and having the aha moment as fast as possible. So you are giving them very clear value. Um, they're, they're getting it. They're referring it to other people. And you're able to actually get folks through the door faster. And that happens really with a much more robust go-to-market experience. So it's not just marketing now. It's also the product experience. It's onboarding documentation, help docs, support even, customer, a little bit of customer success probably, depending on the kind of or product you have. Um, but this is where it becomes more, it, it's beyond just marketing at this point. Now it's the full growth picture of the entire business. Uh, and then 100 and beyond is just volume. Like you're just, you're getting mm -hmm. hundreds of trials or demo requests or whatever it is. They're still effectively converting. You're seeing new market opportunities, continuing to build and refine the product, et cetera. So one of the things we talked about when you took off your armor was in demand maven, keeping a full pipeline, right? And it's not to say that once we go from 50 to 100, that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have a full pipeline the entire time. So there's going to be some ebbs and flows. Talk to us about what you've seen some of your clients do to get that pipeline turning again. Yeah, there's a couple of things. So when it comes to building up pipeline, uh, when we say pipeline, this could be demos or trials, either one, signups even, or app downloads, just depends, of course, on your product. Uh, but when we think about building pipeline, if it's been slow, it's it's usually because we've there, there's been a lack of momentum in some other area in the business. So that could have been, we haven't really been promoting ourselves as much. We haven't really been emailing our lists or we haven't been, um, we haven't been making maybe the connections that we've needed to make to, to put us in front of more of our audience pool. Could also just be, hey, our budget's kind of small right now or it's looking low because maybe we spent it in previous quarters and now we got to figure out how to do this more organically. Uh, so when I think of building up pipeline, I mean, I think of literally infusing energy and muscle power into whatever that engine is, assuming that we have it. And if, we, if we're if we at 50 to 100 customers, we probably have an engine. We just need to put some effort and energy behind it. Um, I'm not necessarily a big proponent of more is more unless you are in that VC funded path. If you're VC funded and you're like the 10x year over year kind of growth, like more actually is more. <laughs> uh, it's like do as much as you possibly can to reach those goals as smart as you possibly can. But with bootstrapping, I find it's much more about um, focus and it's much more about um, like where, who is the, who, like what segment do you need to focus on to reach the goal? And what are the different campaigns, projects, and experiments you need to run in order to reach that segment and then and therefore achieve your goal? And it's a much more focused approach. Uh, than I would say traditional VC. Um, but that I find is usually what it takes to kind of help build up the pipeline. Something that we see that is very common is um, any kind of team could be VC funded or bootstrapped, any kind of team. Sometimes we'll find that like product is building features 
that have nothing to do with who we're ultimately going to market for. Uh, so if I told you we're we're going to go after uh, small consulting firms in the United States that offer marketing services, but all the features we're building are for like technology consulting firms in Europe or whatever, and we're targeting like these kind of these kind of folks. Sometimes like go to market gets a little bit conflicting. Uh, usually, what we see with any kind of forward momentum is literally all systems, all teams, all parts of the business are focused on this audience. Uh, these goals and everyone has like their respective responsibilities, projects, campaigns, whatever it is that they're going to work on. I appreciate you saying that because I got some pushback around this. As entrepreneurs, we all have aspirational identities. We have the aspirational customers and the brands, et cetera. But at the same time, we have the people that are buying from us right now, right? And they have specific problems unique to them in their niche. And what you're talking about is balancing those aspirational clients versus the demographic you're already serving that's putting money in your bank account as a bootstrap founder and really niching down hard and going to get more of them. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to be careful here because I actually just had this conversation with a client today. So to me, there is a difference between focusing and niching. So niching is... We don't care if you don't fit the profile or not. Like we don't cater to anyone outside of this segment vertical industry. Like that to me is is a niche. Um, we only cater this part of the market, and that's it. Focusing, however, is different. So this is much more applicable to teams that have maybe many different segments or they cater to many different verticals. Let's say you are your B two B. You work with hospitals and healthcare. You work with um, like CPG companies, and you work with service based like professional services. Uh, focusing would really be the next one to two years. We're going to focus on professional services. Uh, we can. The thing about think about any go-to-market activity is you're going to get all kinds of customers anyway. And I think that's what founders get so afraid of is they're worried that like by focusing on professional services for the next year, they're not going to get CPG or healthcare companies, but that's actually not true at all. You're still going to get those people. It just might not be at the volume that you're expecting. Uh, but the thing about customer and great marketing, just great marketing in general, people will see themselves in your content and the problem that you're solving. So you're still going to get the randos. Like I'm just, I'm just saying, um, Niching, if you were to niche, you would say no to the randos. You'd be like, no, go away. We don't have a product for you. Sorry. Um, but if you're focusing, you might still say yes to the randos, but your go-to-market efforts are going to be on that segment that you're focused on for however much time. And there are some companies that will focus for one to two years. There are some companies that are like, the next three months, we're running these campaigns for these people to build up this pipeline, and then we're going to move on to the next one. So I do want to be careful. I there is a, to me there's a very big difference between niching and focusing. Uh, I recommend all companies focus. Like nobody suffers from focusing. <laughs> um, niching I think is very different, and I think that that's where you start getting into. Um, the greatest example I can give is like CRM for trucking companies. Like that is a niche. Uh, you if they're not trucking, you're not going to sell to them, right? Um, but focusing I think is very different. No, that makes sense. I understand what you're saying. It's like, uh, you know, hey, we're going after this demographic. So we're focusing our effort and attention on that. We're going to the conferences they right. attend, you know, we're we're posting in their forums, et cetera. But that just means that, hey, if somebody doesn't necessarily fit our profile, but we're still capable of serving them, you know, and we right. pull them in. And right, right. I know one thing you're big on, too, is just look at the data, too. Right. Like after a certain point, you start having clients and customers, you're having all these different conversations. You're going to have a pool of what's working and what's not working, but it all starts by actually getting customers. And I think that's where people fail to realize is like, we can't do anything. We're shooting blind if we don't get out there and actually start onboarding clients. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, the, the thing I think there's a couple of things I cringe at, uh, pretty hard, but the thing I cringe at most often, I think is, um, when, when someone says that they have super strong product market fit, but they don't have a single paying customer, uh, that is a huge, huge um, non sequitur. <laughs> In order for you to have strong product market fit, you have to have paying customers who have stayed with you and haven't churned for at least six months to a year before you can say that you have strong product market fit. 
most founders actually don't know what their product market fit is. Not actually, not not really until they get to that point. And that's okay. Um, I would say if if you were to phrase it like, we think we will have a good chance at strong product market fit, I think that's very different than, oh yeah, our product market fit is great, even though we have zero paying customers um, or we have two paying customers. Like the truth is you're not going to know until you hit a certain amount of volume. Um, but in the meantime, you can certainly be paying attention. But yes, I completely agree. Uh, the data data is a powerful, powerful tool um, or asset, I should say, or resource. It should really drive insight. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be the end all be all. It needs to drive insight and it needs to be something that you are using to identify patterns. Um, patterns and outliers, like that's like the name of the game when it comes to analyzing anything. Uh, but yes, completely agree. So we just talked for almost about 45 minutes, right? And you're marketing <laughs> specialist and marketing gets a bad rap, you know, because Super, yeah. everybody knows that like you need marketing, but the way people are positioning themselves now, there's like, everybody's got a new hack or got a new tactic, et cetera. But the entire time we talk, what are we talking about? We're talking about perfect customers. You know, we're not talking about again, SEO and all this other stuff. So I have. I am of the belief, and I'm curious to hear your perspective, that in the early days of a venture, you have to market, right? Like it, you, you have to market. But the mistake people make is they think marketing is something externally of like the sales process. And when you were talking previously, you were talking about your onboarding. You know, what does that process look like for people? The offboarding, right? All this like really basic stuff that shows people that they matter, you know? that they're, we're not just churning and burning, like bootstrap founders can't afford to do that, you know? So in the early days, right, like sales and marketing really go hand in hand, but you've got to be out there and evangelizing what it is you do because we've all been there. Hey, we got this great idea for a product or the service, da -da -da, and it's freaking crickets, you know? Or you send <laughs> off that email and it's nothing. So getting the sale, getting your marketing going, which again goes hand in hand with sale, that's the thing that's actually going to drive growth in your business. Absolutely. And uh, completely agree. And and many, it's such a common belief too that marketing doesn't impact the other aspects of business. So if we were to think of the, the, the basic threes, there's acquisition, activation, and retention. Uh, a lot of folks still think of marketing as just acquisition, but the truth is that marketing is holistic. Uh, when you think of who owns churn in your, in your business, like if you were to, if you were to sit and think about it, like who owns churn, uh, you probably wouldn't have any one person like the product team, uh, maybe, uh, I think that's actually who it falls on, like whose plate it falls on. Um, some people consider that to be a customer success metric, like customer success owns that. But the truth is that, uh, acquisition, activation and retention, that is all of that is very holistic. Marketing touches every single one of those, uh, pieces of the business funnel. And it, it's sometimes it's hard to get people to see that marketing actually touches every single aspect of the customer experience. Um, if, if one part of the business funnel rests on the shoulders of just one department or team, uh, I, maybe it's just me, uh, but that seems like a disservice actually to the customer experience in the end. Um, because marketing really at its core is helping the absolute best possible person find a solution to their pain with our product. Like that's, that's really its core and hopefully not just find, but convert and stay forever if possible. <laughs> and I think, uh, I think the issue yeah. now is people think marketing is just hiring a social media manager. Yeah. Or we're going to put an intern or, on. We don't really have any marketing going on right now. Let's just pay somebody $500 to post on social media or worse. They paid them $3,500 because they hire an agency or something and they don't have a full pipeline. And 3,500 would be cheap. I mean, I think most agency rates these days are like 10 K minimum. Uh, per month. Um, but yeah, or, you know, we're going to write a bunch of articles. Uh, and I, it's tough because like, I don't want to knock anyone who wants to take action towards marketing, because I will say a founder who is passionate about marketing in any kind of way is so rare and is really exciting. But I agree at some point you do have to like take a step back and say, okay, what is, what is the strategy that is holistic? And how does that tie into like the marketing activities that I'm now going to do to help me accomplish my goal? Um, but yes, definitely a holistic process. Yeah, I completely agree. Love it. Well, as we wrap up here, I got two quick questions for you. Number one, 
You've given us your time here. Again, you're an entrepreneur down in Atlanta. Talk to us about your BHAG for Demand Maven. What's the future look like? What's that big, hairy, audacious goal? The big, hairy, audacious goal is, and it's probably not going to sound that big or hairy, but it's 10 million in 10 years. So we're about two years into that goal. And so far we're, we're making progress. I don't want to say it's like a crazy clip. Uh, you know, we're in, in terms of my style as a founder and CEO, I'm not interested really in the five X or 10 X growth. Uh, I think, I think honestly, that's kind of crazy, um, personally, <laughs> but to me, it's like 1.5 X to two X growth. Like that's, that's the speed that we want to be in, uh, and, you know, of course, it, it just makes for much more sensible team building, things like that. We know that the market's not going anywhere. If anything, there could potentially be new entrants and, you know, we have to get more competitive. But uh, 10 million in 10 years, like that's that's our that's our bag. How big is your team now? So I'm the only full-time person, uh, but there's, let's see, there's two growth strategists. Uh, all of these folks are contractor freelance, but two growth strategists, we have a client service manager. So really the core team is four. And then we have various freelancers that we pull in for uh, different kinds of projects that are on the more on the execution side. So there's like our paid acquisition specialist, our content marketing strategist, um, different writers, folks like that. That's my specialty right there, y'all. I'm trying to stay at that four to 10 people. You know, I don't want to manage <laughs> a bunch of people. So uh, that's pretty cool. I know you're a reader, right? You're a strategy mm -hmm. person. I think I saw on your Twitter, you do like a reading week or something like every year. Yeah, I think. Yeah, uh, I'm a kindred spirit, right? I'm, I'm my brain is so full now. I haven't been able to read as much. But when I'm on it, I'm just cranking through books. What are some of your favorite books for early stage founders? Ooh, OK, OK. Um, my favorite books for early stage founders. I'm, I'm, of course, going to recommend Obviously Awesome by April Dunford. So April Dunford is a positioning guru and expert. Even if you don't have your MVP ready yet, I would be reading her book because it's going to give you so much just knowledge and information about how best to think about positioning your product when you do eventually go to market. Um, but even if you were to start now thinking about it, it, it could potentially lead you into far more profitable spaces than maybe you were originally considering. So obviously awesome by April Dunford. Um, there's of course the like the lean startup by Eric Reese, uh, traction. Uh, I'm looking at my bookshelf now. Um, I'm going to, of course, though, forget who wrote traction. The other one that comes to mind is the high growth handbook by Elad Gill. I think the only, the only caveat I would give is I think that there's far more books for, maybe I'm wrong, actually. There's probably far more books for those that are VC funded than those that are bootstrapped. Um, so I would just keep that in mind. But High Growth Handbook is incredible by Elliot Gill. Um, what's one more that I can give? No, I think I think those are the, the two that I would definitely recommend. And then Works by Eric Reese. Um, you could probably read Behind the Cloud by Mark Benioff and get some interesting insight there. Uh, but yeah, that's what comes to mind. Knowledge bombs, y'all. What I'm going to do, Asia, is I'll be sure to include a link to Demand Maven in our show notes. I'm also going to include your talk. And I forgot my question, too. We've got veteran yeah. entrepreneurs and military spouses tuning in all over the country, all over the world. How can we as a community elevate the work you're doing with Demand Maven? Thank you. Yes. Thank you for asking. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I think that there's a couple of things. First, if you absolutely loved this episode, if I, you know, if we, if we taught you something, I would love to see you guys share it on any social sphere. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm pretty much on all of them, <laughs> I think at this point, but uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever you're at, if this provided value, we'd just love to see that you, that you share it, that you elevate it. Uh, and I think in terms of me specifically, um, I'm on Twitter. I do a lot of tweeting and sometimes I have some really spiky things to say. And then sometimes I like to post really intense threads. Uh, definitely give me a follow at Asia Arangio. Uh, but apart from that, yeah, I'm an open book. If you have any questions, my DMs are open. Love it. Follow her, y'all. Troll her on Twitter. Check out her content, man. And uh, she's got an amazing podcast. And uh, we appreciate you spending your time with us. Your time is worth $10,000 a minute. And you gave me an hour. So we appreciate you. And for everyone that's tuning in, uh, do me a favor. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast host and platform and check out our newsletter for the transition. Uh, we'll release a newsletter at least once a week on Substack. Head over to BunkerLabs.org. Get plugged into the veteran, entrepreneurial, and military spouse ecosystem 
We're here. You don't have to go at it alone. And we're going to keep creating amazing content to support you on your journey. So until next time, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week.